This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Spencer Chase. Our guest this week is United States Senator Jerry Moran. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Senator Jerry Moran next. Today's open mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 300 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Kansas Republican Jerry Moran is serving his second term in the U.S. Senate, where he is a member of the Ag Appropriations Subcommittee and other panels critical to agriculture and rural America. AgriPulse spoke to Moran on the sidelines of the recent American Farm Bureau Convention, where he spoke with members about issues like trade, rural health care, and veterans affairs. On the appropriations front, he says election year politics may cause troubles in other areas of policy, but it should be a less dramatic year for conversations surrounding federal spending decisions. It is a challenging year. I'm tired of the number of times in which the answer about getting things done is, well, we probably won't get that done. It's an election year. We have election years in this country about every two years, and it it is an impediment. Uh, It's not a good excuse for not doing our work, but it is a reality, and uh, there will be those who need to get home. We have a presidential campaign that's going on, and you see particularly the number of Democrat senators who are absent out on the campaign trail. And then as it gets closer to the fall elections, members of the House and Senate who are up for election will want to be elsewhere than Washington, D.C. It it shortens the calendar uh, for our work product. And I would say that, uh, I mean, from an agricultural point of view, a couple of legislative items that uh, directly affect agriculture. Uh, One, I think that you could see the Ag Committee uh, completing would be this issue of school lunch programs and nutrition, something the administration has weighed in uh, in the executive branch, but something that needs reauthorization. So that's probably a a highlight of the Ag Committee. I would say that um, from an appropriations point of view, the good news is that we've already uh, established the budget numbers. So what we passed and approved last year was for 2019 and 20. That means we don't have the problems of determining a budget number We will have an allocation that then comes in this year, early this year, for each of the 12 appropriation bills, one of them being the Ag Appropes Committee. And I would guess those numbers are probably pretty similar to what they were this year. So I think you'll see maybe an earlier appropriations process. And what that means is about the same amount of money to spend, but still competing interests on how it's spent. And that's things like, even within agriculture, do you spend more money on conservation programs? Uh, Are you more interested in the issues of of implementation of of farm laws, just the things that get involved in agriculture, rural development, what's the priority? Uh, And those are always things that we have to sort out. But I don't think it would be a terribly contentious uh, appropriate problem, appropriation bill problem in 2020. That's that's good news. It does consume time, and we'll have witnesses uh, in front of our committee and from the secretary and others. I also would say that a couple of things that are important to agriculture. WARDA, 
The Water Resources Development Act is, uh, is in need of reauthorization in 2020. That's how we make decisions about what's authorized for funding on, in an agriculture sense, waterways, uh, canals, uh, the shipment. Uh, we should have a debate and discussion about infrastructure generally and a transportation bill. Uh, we'll see how that develops and whether we just end up with an extension. But there is a plenty of issues uh, if, uh, if the time is found. One of the things, you know, I spent time in the House of Representatives. One of the differences uh, in the Senate is how much time it takes and the issue that a leader, the majority leader of the, of the Senate, whether he or she is a Republican or Democrat, their issue is how much time is this going to take on the Senate floor given the number of days that we have. So another big topic for American agriculture has been just this concept of trying to approve some of these trade agreements that have been in the works for the last you know, 12 to 24 to 36 months and even longer in some cases. But now it seems like we've, we're getting to a sense of finality on a lot of these. But we now have signatures on a page. In your mind, what needs to happen next for American agriculture to feel comfortable with the words that are on that page? Well, for about the last maybe three years, maybe longer, my top priority as a person who advocates for farmers and ranchers of Kansas and this country is trade, exports. This is the third year in a row I've been to American Farm Bureau uh, to talk about the importance of trade and to ask farm commodity groups and farm organizations to actively engage in lobbying members of Congress and the administration to make sure we don't lose NAFTA, that make sure if it's going to go away it's replaced with something else. We were worried about uh, TPP and our lack of involvement, what that meant to our particularly cattle men and women in regard to meat exports to Japan, hugely important. The administration has now negotiated a trade agreement with Japan, that's good news. And then this huge issue of China, uh, and I was at the White House uh, a week or so ago when the president and the vice premier signed this agreement. You have to feel upbeat about that, I do. But it is what's next. What does it really mean? And I think the farmers that I talked to when I was at American Farm Bureau's convention, their question was, well, the markets went down after they signed the agreement. What's going on here? So we're still looking for the good news. I think that the issue for particularly China, but all the, every trade agreement, is, is it going to be enforced? Uh, and who's going to hold our trading partners' feet uh, to the fire to hold them accountable? And that's where the administration and Congress can play an active role. Uh, and I'll do my part to, to make certain that the Chinese and others know that we expect compliance. I think also on this issue of, uh, of these agreements is we've had a lot of agriculture commodities. Uh, the demand has not been sufficient for the supply. Agriculture, like every other market, is dependent upon how that balances out. And we're increasing the demand but we still have a lot of supply in the markets that will have to be consumed before we see significant increases in price. If we take the optimistic view that the worst of the trade war is behind us, assess for me, if you can, just the general financial and economic health of your constituents in rural America with the worst of the trade war behind us. Well, of course, I can speak uh, most or best about Kansas, but on-the-farm income since 2013 in Kansas is down 50%. Uh, that speaks to the supply of grain commodities that we have. It speaks to lack of trade agreements. So you be, I think you begin to see that, that that improves, but it is still a challenging time. And the solution in difficult times is often more debt, which then even when good times return, makes it more difficult for there to be 
on the farm income because of, of debt costs. Again, nothing is easy, but we're headed in the, in the right direction. It's better to have an agreement with China than not, and it's better to have an agreement that we can hold their, them accountable to than having no agreement. So it's good stuff, but on the farm income is a problem. And it's a generational issue, too. I mean, most of my farmers over the last couple of years have indicated their support for the Trump administration, for the president, his trade policies, uh, holding um, China to a standard that requires them to do things differently than what they've been doing before. Their support for that, even among those farmers whose incomes have been harmed. And I appreciate that attitude and I appreciate their patriotism, their support for something they, they have a view, and it's a, it's a noble thing, that there's something more important than my, my personal well-being. But the reality is, with commodity prices where they are, we begin to lose the chance to get sons and daughters back to a farm. Long-term consequences, because once we lose those kids to you know, urban or suburban America, where there's a 401k or a health care plan, if, when things get better, are we going to be able to get our kids back? And that remains to be seen. It will be a challenge. And while, while we're waiting for better times in agriculture, I mean, the grocery store is closing, uh, there's just less Main Street activity, and uh, the challenges are great. So we need, we need markets, and we need uh, the consequences of getting those markets to be felt sooner rather than later. And obviously one of the things the Trump administration did to help rural America through this trade war was the market facilitation program. So taking this conversation back to Capitol Hill then, as an appropriator, what do you analyze as sort of the long-term impacts of that market facilitation program when it comes to funding debates on Capitol Hill, the Department of Agriculture, and the CCC? Well, government payments to farmers have increased as a percentage of their income over the last several years. That's probably something that's not going to continue or be sustainable. Certainly we'll have you know, commodity payments under the Farm Bill and conservation payments, but this issue of trade adjustment payments has been an administration issue uh, determined by Secretary Perdue. Uh, he seems to indicate that the last payment will be made here shortly and farmers shouldn't expect anything further. Maybe with the exception of knowing that 2020 is an election year and things seem to happen to take care of people in election years in a more um, active way, maybe that's the exception. But I don't think that we have the ability as rural members of Congress to find huge sums of money in the tune of billions to compensate farmers for the foreseeable future. So it, it, it becomes a challenge to help continue to meet the needs. And I guess the good news is that, again, farmers would say, uh, while the facilitation payment has been a big help, uh, it isn't how I prefer to earn a living. It has tided me over, it has kept me in business, but I'm anxious to get back to earning my living in the market. And in part, I mean, that's, a, that's a, the right answer, I think, to the question. It's what, what a a, a person would want, or a farmer and rancher would want, but it's also facing reality. Those dollars just don't exist uh, forever. We've talked a little bit here about the financial health of rural America, but usually that health of rural America question sometimes can involve the literal health of rural America and providing health care to, to the residents that uh, might not have the, uh, you know, the residential structure to support the, the formalized medicine that a larger city can. What can be done administratively in Washington through Congress to rectify some of the issues that we see with rural health care? Well, it is true. I mean, my, my focus when I talk about rural America to, to Kansans, it's certainly about farmers and ranchers, but farmers and ranchers need a doctor, need a pharmacist, need a nurse, need a hospital, as does the community. 
And if we allow the healthcare infrastructure, the healthcare providers to, to disappear, it means that it's much less likely that the community that a farmer lives in and what the community that that farmer supports has a future. Young families don't take the risk of living in a place where they can't adequately meet the health care needs of their children, either current or emergency. Uh, and senior citizens, which comprise a significant component of rural America's population, um, I know in my own case, uh, my sister and I would have had a conversation. If, we didn't, if they didn't, my mom and dad didn't have access to a doctor, uh, we'd have been trying to talk them into moving someplace where there was a doctor. And we lose important people in our community, damaging to the community, but also damaging to seniors who are, end up living someplace that isn't home because there is no health care available. So what can be done? It is making certain, for example, that the critical access hospital designation that Medicare provides, it provides a cost-based reimbursement, continues. Uh, there's 125-plus hospitals in Kansas. Eighty-some of them are designated as critical access hospitals. It is a way of reimbursing small hospitals for their costs as compared to paying them for a service. They don't have enough services. They don't have enough people to provide services to on an ongoing basis to have enough revenue. So it's a way that we've been able to keep health care. We're working, I'm working closely with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services called CMS, uh, trying to figure out if there's a different mechanism for payment of health care. What, what should the hospital in a small town look like uh, in the future? Is it the, the model that we use now? In some instances, I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain the answer to that is yes. But in other instances, will the community decide that there's a, a way that we can afford to keep health care available that doesn't mean the full-fledged facilities that we have today? I would never want to make that decision. In fact, what I always tell a community is, I'm going to fight for you as long as you're fighting for yourself. As long as you don't give up on the future, I'm, I'm your ally. And that certainly is true in health care. But there are a number of communities who are trying to look at how do we have an emergency room and outpatient services. And the reality is that the, the hospital that exists today is much more focused on inpatient care, hospital beds. And that's an expensive proposition and not utilized to the degree that uh, it used to be. And people don't stay in the hospital uh, the length of time that uh, used to require for, for even a surgery. So I want to shift gears and, and ask a couple political questions of you, um, you know, particularly from the perspective of someone who once led the Senate Republican campaign efforts. Knowing that we are in an election year, a number of your colleagues campaigning for another six years on the job. What do you think rural Americans need to hear from Senate candidates, given the current political climate and given the current farm economic climate? You know, every state is different, and I, I continue to believe that while national issues matter, people still have an interest in voting for somebody they know, that they trust, that they believe will work in their best interest, somebody committed to getting the work of Washington, D.C. done. And so individual candidates matter a lot. And I, as, a, as a voter, I would want to hear that that candidate is, is interested in the things that I'm interested in as a citizen of a small town or a farmer or a rancher or a small business owner. I don't think it's easy for politicians to convince people of things that aren't true. So when a, an elected official or a candidate convinces somebody of something, I think they've probably done their work in a way that is, reflects the reality that they are committed to their constituents. You know, particularly rural America, I, I, I'm much more familiar with rural places in the country than I am suburbs and particularly urban areas. We're accustomed to knowing our candidates. We're accustomed to knowing our elected officials. We expect to see them. We expect to have a cup of coffee with them at the, at the donut shop and make sure that they are one of us. 
And I think that's what uh, many folks in rural America want to see. And they want to see uh, Congress that works together better. It, where it's, a, it's a diverse country. Not everybody agrees on everything. There is a rural and urban divide. The reality is there aren't enough of us who come from rural America to solve all of the issues or even address all of the issues that we face in rural places across the country unless we work with those from urban areas to find some common ground that matters to both of us. And rural citizens, farmers and ranchers need to do more at connecting with folks who, who don't know what a farmer does. If we were to have this same conversation 365 days from now, I would be talking to the senior senator from the state of Kansas. So I'll ask, but I, but I would like to phrase my next question not to United States Senator Jerry Moran, but to Kansas resident Jerry Moran. Uh, a, a Senate race to, to replace the retiring Pat Roberts. Your, your thoughts on that race and, and how, how you expect it to, to unfold and, and what that might mean for the people of Kansas. Senator Roberts has been a leader in our state for a long time, particularly a leader in agriculture, uh, chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee. Uh, and uh, I think there's certainly a significant part of Kansas is going to be looking for somebody who is going to be an advocate and a leader for farmers and ranchers. That's an area that I am fully engaged in and, and would, would love to have an ally on behalf of the, the nature of our state, uh, rural Kansas. And one of the great things about a state like ours is that it doesn't really matter where you live. Your roots are in agriculture or your income is in agriculture. Uh, your friends and family are in agriculture. There's a way to connect even if you're in the suburbs of Kansas City or Wichita. You have a rural connection. So that's a good thing. I would say that the way I look at elections is it's a chance for us to, to evaluate candidates, to um, determine who, uh, Republicans determine who is in the, who, who they're going to support. Democrats choose their candidate and the two face uh, each other in a general election. I would never put my judgment above Kansans. They're going to have plenty of an opportunity to listen, hear, see, uh, have conversations with uh, a number of people. Republicans and Democrats who want to occupy the United States Senate seat from Kansas. And I trust Kansans to use their judgment. I would say that, you know, Kansas hasn't elected a Democrat to the United States Senate since 1932. Uh, so we have a long history. And I would think that uh, the politics of the country today is it's more likely that Kansans are going to vote for a Republican candidate for president than a Democrat candidate for president. And it lends itself to these national issues. Uh, while they're not unimportant, they're still going to want to connect with the candidate and know them. We recently saw Senate Majority Leader uh, Dole offer an endorsement. Any, any plans on your part to, to wade into the race via endorsement? Uh, I'm certainly interested in being helpful to, to, to a candidate, uh, but I, I have refrained from endorsements uh, in the past. I don't expect to make an endorsement of anybody. Senator Dole is highly regarded and his, his endorsement is important. Uh, Kansans uh, pay attention to that. I've always thought that um, my, my, my fellow citizens in Kansas are as capable as I am in evaluating candidates and making a determination as what's in their best interest and what's in the best interest of our state and country. Senator Moran, we want to thank you for taking the time to join us here for our Open Mic podcast. As is tradition, it is Open Mic and you have the last word. Well, I appreciate AgriPulse. I mean, one of the things that we know is that uh, agriculture, farmers and ranchers, rural America, we're a minority in this country. Uh, and I appreciate AgriPulse and their efforts to, to make certain that the story is told, that, that farmers and ranchers 
have the facts that the policy decisions are debated and that uh, farmers can have input into policy decisions that I and others make in Washington, D.C. Information about agriculture, I think, used to be lots of sources, and there, there are fewer. AgriPulse is one of the most uh, important, and I'm grateful for what you do. Plus, we, it reminds us that we have an, an obligation and a, uh, a responsibility to tell the story of farmers and ranchers across the country. Our thanks to Senator Jerry Moran, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Spencer Chase.